1: Wednesday, May 3rd, I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, incarcerated Mississippians are being granted more opportunities for higher education. Then, doctors warn birth defects of the heart can lead to lifelong health risks. Plus, in this week's History as Lunch, we examine the role of the Mississippi press in the days and weeks following the lynching of Emmett Till. Incarcerated Mississippians often have a difficult time rejoining society when they're released, making it more likely they'll return to prison within three years. But several programs underway to help educate inmates prior to their release, Yolanda Houston is director of the Mississippi Consortium for Higher Education in Prisons. She says a new grant is helping inmates access higher education, which can help them achieve an associate's, bachelor's, or trade degree.
2: This is extremely important because everybody deserves a second chance, uh, regardless of your situation. So it's, it's important to uh, assist those individuals that are incarcerated with the rehabilitation process. Uh, and part of that process is um, giving them the opportunity to take the classes, the trades, while they are incarcerated so that when they're um, released, possibly, into their communities or other communities, they could be productive citizens in their communities, in the state, and for their families.
3: And what are some specific impacts of offering these services to those who are incarcerated?
2: Well, the first thing, the recidivism rate declines. Uh, If they complete the programs and they receive the associate's degrees, four-year degrees, or trades, that allows them to basically assist in uh, in increasing the workforce and employment in the state, decreasing the possibility of returning to those facilities, and um, being able to take care of their families, uh, which is most important, and themselves.
3: And so how will this new grant from the Mellon Foundation help to expand the program?
2: Well, we have some wonderful partners that we're working with, uh, institutions of higher learning, Mississippi Community College Board, Humanities Council, and of course Wilbur Hines, Education Foundation. Um, Our partners, along with uh, the community colleges and four-year colleges in the state, um, this will um, allow us to provide the necessary resources. It will allow our community colleges, our four-year colleges, to continue to provide those classes. Uh, For those students, of course, with the aid of Pell Grant, uh, because they are able to receive Pell Grant at this point. And uh, allow us to just dig into the data. Um, We need to know what the data looks like um, so that we can continue to improve on the programs that we're providing and to make it better for those that are requiring those services.
3: How has the expansion of Pell Grants to those who are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, how has that changed the landscape of higher education for them?
2: It provides more opportunity uh, for those, um, especially if they're up for parole and they have taken those classes maybe a year or two leading up to um, their uh, parole dates. Um, Imagine what that looks like um, when they have um, completed those classes, achieve those completion certificates, and they're able to say, hey, I am doing the work. I'm serious about what I'm doing, and I want to be able to go out into society um, and become become a productive citizen.
3: And a stated goal on your website of the foundation is to achieve self-sustainability. What would that look like for you all?
2: Employment, hopefully continued education, increased um, jobs for those individuals, um, increased employment um, or hiring for those uh, businesses that are willing to participate um, in these programs and allow those that are incarcerated to come into those facilities and work alongside everyone else.
3: And how did you become involved in this type of work?
2: Actually, it's always been a passion of mine. Um, this was just an opportunity that was presented to me. I'm passionate about it because of... Um, Family that have been incarcerated, that have uh, been given the opportunity to rehabilitate in others, in other in another state. So it's important because I've seen what has happened. I, I've seen how that it doesn't necessarily, if you're not given that opportunity, it doesn't provide a good quality of life for you if you are released and you don't have the skills, you don't have the certificates of completion, in order to go out and show an employer that, hey, I am serious about um, going to the next phase of my life successfully.
3: Mississippi has the highest incarceration rate per capita in the United States. How could expanding higher education programs to those who are incarcerated impact upon Mississippi, if at all?
2: It can uh, decrease the recidivism rate. Increase those associate degrees, those four-year degrees. um, Decrease crime, because if you are not given a skill, let's think about what would you turn back to if you do not have something that would reinforce uh, that rehabilitation process and going back into society um, as a productive citizen. So uh, just decreasing that recidivism rate is the most important thing and and a lot of work that we have ahead of us that we are ready for and ready for the challenge uh, to move this forward in the state of Mississippi.
1: Yolanda Houston is director of the Mississippi Consortium for Higher Education in Prisons. She's helping inmates get a better education so they can find jobs when released. Coming up, Mississippi has the highest rate of heart disease in the nation. Doctors say birth defects can lead to lifelong health risks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
4: Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel.
1: Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi has one of the highest rates of heart disease in the nation. Doctors say many cases begin before a child is born. This weekend, health care providers at the University of Mississippi Medical Center are holding a 5K and fun run to raise awareness about congenital heart disease. Dr. William Campbell is a cardiologist and program director for the Adult Congenital Heart Disease Program. He says congenital heart disease is the number one cause of infant deaths and it has lifelong effects on the health of adults.
5: So to put that in perspective, if there are about 3 million Mississippians, that means about 30,000 Mississippians have congenital heart disease, which is more than the population of my hometown of Vicksburg. In the last 60 years, the medical and surgical techniques to correct these problems have improved dramatically. You know, UMC surgeons are actually a large part of that era that stretches all the way back in the 1960s. I even still see some of those patients. But this is a patient population that previously been cared for by pediatric cardiologists as most of them didn't survive to adulthood. However, currently, most congenital heart patients are now able to live normal, active, unrestricted lives. As these patients grow up, we now transition these patients from our pediatric cardiology colleagues at Batson in the Children's Hospital to our adult care and our clinics.
1: So they require lifelong intervention, medical intervention.
5: Absolutely, they do. And you know, one challenge is that there are currently twice as many adults with heart disease as children. And while the pediatric cardiology at UMC do amazing work with childhood CHD, my partner, Dr. Mike McMullen, and I are the only two adult CHD clinic providers in the state. And in an effort to address the lack of adult heart disease providers, we knew we would need to create a training program for advanced cardiac training in ACHD. So in 2015, Dr. McMullin and I set for and passed the first uh, board exam in adult sexual heart disease, and that allowed us to create one of the first of only seven accredited ACHD training programs the following year. We've also been very fortunate to have trainees in our two-year program uh, uninterrupted since our inception, including our current fellow, Dr. Sarah Studiman, who is a pediatric cardiologist. is currently finishing up our training with us in a couple of months, and she actually happens to also be the race director for this event on Saturday.
1: And you're talking about a race. Tell us a little bit about that.
5: This Saturday at 10 o'clock, May the 6th, um, we have a race that's at the district in Jackson. To sign up for it, it's the Mississippi Race Timings website. The race is called Never Miss a Beat. It's Saturday, May the 6th at 10. Same-day registration is available. The events in the start and finish line will be right there at the green space at the district. And at 10 o'clock, the kids will have a fun run, and there's a 5K to start immediately after. After the raise, we'll have a live band, food, all forms of refreshments. And the money that we raise will go to fund one of our patient education projects. For example, a previous project that we had was giving our patients healthcare passports that actually looked like travel passports. There was a Basically, a portable copy of all their pertinent medical information to assist them if they were seen in a healthcare setting outside of UMC.
1: When you talk about a child, a baby born with a heart defect, is it readily diagnosed or does some time pass before it's identified?
5: That's a great question. These days, more complex external heart defects are actually diagnosed in utero. However, there's a wide spectrum of variation, and then there are six, eight, ten fairly common general heart defects who don't become symptomatic until adulthood. And so we actually have a mix of two patient populations. We have about half of our patients who are di- diagnosed you know, in the pediatric world and transition up to the in the adult clinic, and then we rely on you know, outside cardiologists and other providers to um, recognize and send us and those handful of diagnoses that initially present with symptoms you know, in adulthood. And so when we got this program started you know, maybe seven or eight years ago, to we made a point to go around to all these places, all our referral centers throughout the state, and we lectured and, and talked about how you know, things to look for to um, identify congenital heart disease to transfer more appropriately for further care with us. So that's a great question because it it's both a mix of, Patients are identified young, and then patients that are identified later. And because some of the the later identified uh, congenital heart disease is often fairly uncommon, it has to be on your radar to think about to identify and refer over for treatment.
1: Can you give us an idea of what some of the defects are that lead to congenital heart disease? Sure.
5: You know it's difficult to generalize because there's such a wide spectrum of congenital heart disease. There's the simpler, kind of simple holes that need to be addressed, all the way to patients that are born with only a single main pumping chamber. And I mentioned earlier that most congenital heart disease patients can live a normal active life, but follow-up procedures or medications can often be required. And really, nothing is more upsetting to see than to see a patient who has been living unnecessarily symptomatic you know, due to lack of health care access, whether it's insurability or lack of provider access or limited insight into their condition, In somebody that could have been fixed or even worse, somebody that's kind of missed their window for, for repair. But yes, almost all these patients require you know, lifelong follow-up, even if they've been you know, quote-unquote fixed in the pediatric world um, due to these late issues that can come up. And the ones that are identified in adulthood and they often need to be uh, monitored and often either, either have a procedure in with me in the heart catheterization lab or with one of our general heart surgeons that we have on staff at UMC.
1: And so this weekend's event is going to help raise money for education.
5: Correct. The money raised will go to fund one of our patient education projects. I mentioned the healthcare care passport that we gave our patients, started giving our patients about four or five years ago. We thought that was important for our patient to have a copy of their own medical record because these are complex defects that sometimes you know, outside providers don't have a good grasp on. And sometimes their oxygen levels are not normal or their blood count is not normal. And you know, that may be appropriate for them, but if it's seen at an outside hospital or an outside emergency room, it may be more concerning unless they knew that that was normal for their congenital defect. And so we did that in an effort to kind of prevent mismanagement outside the hospital. The money for this will go towards a patient education project. We actually even had a, um, we have a patient-centered annual conference that we had to put on hold after uh, COVID, but it's going to restart this coming up year. to help them better understand their heart disease and actually you know, meet other patients that have you know, similar issues as they do. And some of this money may go towards that education conference as well.
1: Well, that's great. Dr. Campbell, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about congenital heart disease and give us a better understanding and also tell us why education and what you want to move forward with is so critical and important. Thank you.
5: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us all. I really appreciate that.
1: Coming up in this week's History is Lunch, we examine the role of the Mississippi press in the days and weeks following the lynching of Emmett Till. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
3: Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app.
1: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Through careful examination of small weeklies and larger daily newspapers, Davis Hauk and Matthew Grindy sought answers. The historians wanted to reveal how Mississippi journalists expressed and shaped public opinion in the aftermath of the 1955 murder of black teenager, 14-year-old Emmett Till. They found that early coverage tended to be sympathetic to Till, but when the case became a clarion call for civil rights and racial justice in the state, journalists reacted. David Houck is the Fannie Lou Hamer Professor of Rhetorical Studies at Florida State University. Today he will be speaking at History is Lunch at the two Mississippi museums. He shares more with our Michael Guidry.
0: The The name Emmett Till has circulated so frequently, not only in Mississippi, but around the country, that sometimes it's useful to go back to origins uh, and begin at the beginning and to see how what I'm doing in this project is look at how the Mississippi press uh, wrote about the Till case. Um, My my initial, I I didn't begin with an argument. I didn't begin with uh, anything but a set of questions and those just involved if i was if i was a white person living in let's say jackson uh in september 1955 um, what would i have learned reading my local paper or if i was uh, in greenville or if i was in greenwood and so what i tried to do is survey as many newspapers as i could find in the entire state of mississippi it wasn't i didn't want to make the argument that oh this this one paper represents an entire constellation of public opinion. I don't I don't think that's very good scholarship. And fortunately, the Mississippi Department of Archives and History has archived an enormous collection of the white Mississippi press from 1955. So I, I had a nice trove of documents to work with. I just think it's important uh, because the name Emmett Till has circulated so much. And we think we know a lot about the beginning of the case, and I'm not so sure that we do. Um, there's, there's a lot there were a lot of surprises uh, in the press coverage for me
4: what did you learn looking at uh this archive this vast archive of of press clippings um what did you learn about what was missed about telling this story and uh, any if, if there were any disparities between what happened you know that we know now almost seventy years later uh, and what the the white press in Mississippi w- was saying at the time
0: well the 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 thing that really surprised me was, because I had, I had come in with my own kind of Emmett Till baggage about Mississippi, that, oh, this is going to be negative. Uh, they pile on right away. Um, but no, the first four or five days of coverage, so really from August 29 to September 1st and 2nd, is really, really positive Emmett Till and, and Mamie Till coverage. Um the press is really piling on Milam and Bryant. How could you do this? They even begin editorializing that you're making the entire state look bad. Um, this is the work of the citizens council and so this this surprised me, and then everything changed and and I mean pretty much literally everything when uh, Roy Wilkins came out with a uh, with a press release uh, on the second first and second when it was reported of September, basically blaming. This is when the body was discovered on the 31st, basically blaming the entire state for allowing this to happen. He shouldn't have said it. Uh, it was intemperate. He and, and what happened immediately was Mississippi got defensive. And uh, not too long thereafter, um, lawyers started defending Mylam and Bryant. Uh, the white press started pushing back, you know. Uh, how dare the NAACP say this? And then, and then what you have, and this is where justice in the cases gets denied, is you have a sheriff, Sheriff Strider, of Tallahatchie County, who says literally the next day, "Oh, that body that I signed off on that came out of the Tallahatchie River uh, on August 31st, and I said to the press was in the river for two or three days. You know what? I don't think that's I don't think that was Emmett Till. Uh, I think that body was in the river for two or three weeks." And I think that was a plant. By the end of the ACP, so even the evidence changes based on that Wilkins quote.
4: As this story gains national spotlight, is there anything? Is there anything in, in, during during those weeks and months as, as this case and, and this lynching become um, kind of the linchpin of the of the, the modern civil rights movement? Did the tone of the Mississippi press change at all during during that mm-hmm. time period?
0: It does. It continues to become very, very defensive because they white Mississippians see that Mamie Till has put the body on exhibit In not on exhibit, but they, they that's the terminology they use uh, where she has the public showing for several days. And again, Mississippi is appalled by this and they they become very, very defensive and, and it really does become a national story after then. Um, Of course, it it blows up with the trial. But that period really in the uh, Mississippi indicts Milam and Bryant on murder on September 6th. Emmett is buried, I believe, also on September 6th up in Chicago. And uh, part of what I'm not going to be able to talk about today, but the black press uh, has picked up the story. It, It is a national story in the black press. It's still becoming that in the white press. It's not there yet. It's certainly an important state story at the time, but the national press is just kind of getting wind of it, uh, and it will become a national story about the third week of September.
4: In the last week, we've been notified of the death of Carolyn Bryant Dunham. She re- kind of represented this last um, chance for some type of legal justice, legal recourse, um, Everything, everyone else involved in this. Everyone's gone, um, and so what, where does that leave the the story. Yeah. You
0: know what? No. It's it's a great question, Michael. I'm glad you asked it. What it does, it leaves us with this uh, display at the museum today, where uh, justice is not done in a court of law, but uh, there's a there's an attempt to bring people together uh, to first of all get the history right, to understand the history, and then to talk to each other about uh their their kind of versions of Emmett till and where those might be wrong and where they're right and and in in community reconciliation i know is a really important part of this project and so because we're not going to have justice in a courtroom uh we have to continue the conversation and this this display this memorial this traveling exhibit i think helps us do that
4: and We'll leave it there, uh, Davis. Howe presenting a lynching post facto in Till and the Mississippi Press in 1955, and that's happening today at the two Mississippi museums as part of History is Lunch. Uh, Davis, thank you so much for for taking some time to 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 explain this research and what you found.
0: Thank you for having me, Michael.
1: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.